Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And you know, Tane, we've been really fortunate lately, I guess because of the COVID-19, to be able to get some really awesome people as guests on our podcast. Yeah, you know, their boredom uh, has worked to our advantage. (laughs) You know, and who would have known if we ran that contest, if you've heard all of the episodes and you went to North Carolina, you can appear on the podcast. And lo and behold, there was one winner. One winner. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and it just so happened that it was his dream to be on a podcast. So you guys will get to hear a little bit of that excitement in his voice in a few minutes. So folks, sit back, enjoy yourself. Welcome to the Case Count episode. Of the Good Judgment Podcast. We're honored to have a couple of guests on the podcast today, Judge David Emerson from the Superior Court of Douglas County and Mr. Christopher Hansard, who works with the Administrative Office of the Courts, and we'll call it the AOC throughout the rest of the podcast. That's correct. Once again, we've been able to convince two incredibly busy men to join us, Judge Emerson and uh, Mr. Hansard. We're honored to welcome you to the Good Judgment podcast today. I hope you're both doing well. Doing great. Doing well, thank you. Gentlemen, um, truth be told, we just invite you because that means we have to do less work. So that's some of the truth, too. Um, We have asked you all to come on the podcast and talk to us today, and and we're extremely appreciative of your time. In all candor, we know you all have a lot of other things you could be doing. But, Tane, let's tell everybody what these two guys are going to talk with us about today. Yeah, sure. Um, Today's topic for our listeners is uh, case counts, you know, uh, just like on Sesame Street. Oh, I'm the count. I'm going to count the cases. Um, so yeah, it's it's something really basic, but something that's very important for all of us as judges. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. Judge Emerson, let's start with you. We usually start our interview with our episodes with a little background information. If we have someone kind enough to join us as a guest, if you would tell our listeners a little bit about where you serve as a Superior Court judge and a little bit about the path you, that you took to get there. Wait, I practiced law for 15 years in Douglas County, and I was elected uh, to begin serving in January of 1991, and I've been trying all kinds of cases ever since then. Um, I've served in a variety of capacities. I've always, always had a passion about case management and courts and court technology. Y'all know that. And... Uh, I've been fortunate to serve as the chairman of the Workload Assessment Committee for, uh, what is it, Christopher, 10 years. I've lost count of how long I've been the chairman. It's at least, Uh, it's been at least 10 years, Judge. And uh, so I have a keen interest in it. I enjoy it. I enjoy trying to help folks understand the system. Uh, I was a math major in undergraduate school, so I've always had a passion for formulas that explains it it uh, it makes so much sense now ah see i did not know until just okay it's all good now so uh, that's that's why i've always you know the numbers i'm not an arithmetist but i i was pretty skilled at calculus and other things so anyway uh and 
I've been fortunate to serve. The Chief Justice appoints me to serve and, and has asked me to continue to serve uh, more than once. So that's it's one of my privileges that I get to do uh, this job. Christopher, same for you. Uh, this is, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, working with the AOC. And on second thought, you might even tell the folks what AOC stands for and what the AOC's basic duties are, and then about a little bit about what you do. Sure. So I wanted to say first, I, yeah, I've been listening to podcasts since before they were called podcasts back in 2005 um, when I was in college. And so it's been my dream to be on one ever since. So I appreciate you guys making that, that dream come true. This is um, the podcast that makes dreams come true. People say that all the time. That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the rest of the story there is that the Administrative Office of the Courts, AOC, um, is a state organization that serves every class of court in Georgia. Uh, we were created in 1973 to staff the Judicial Council. Um, we provide services, uh, subject matter expertise on, on policy, court innovation, legislation, court administration to all Georgia courts. Um, we also do a number of IT, budget, financial services, projects, and services to, to judicial branch entities all across the state. Um, of course, we report to the Judicial Council, which I think you, you all have talked about on your podcast before. Um, and the, of course, the Judicial Council is chaired by the Chief Justice. And so we report to him kind of on a daily basis and do whatever the council and the, the group uh, council and the chief say needs doing. Um, but we also have certain statutory duties, mandated statutory duties. And I know you all like OCGA codes on here. So if you want to look up OCGA 15524, you can find out exactly what our statutory duties are. And I'll come to those later in, when we were talking. But um, I came to the AOC straight out of grad school, uh, go Tar Heels. Um, during a time when, you know, a few cases were hiring because of the Great Recession. Um, and I was somehow able to convince um, the other researchers and AOC director at the time that I knew about how to do good research. I tricked them into thinking that and they <laughs> gave me the job. Um, I started the job the day after I got back from my honeymoon, literally, which was almost 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years in October. Um, and the very- Just remember that, okay? Yeah. Remember that day. Well, our, well our anniversary is 10, 10, 10, so it's not hard to remember. Um, Smart, man. Wasn't that the name of a German shepherd at one point, 10, 10, 10? <laughs> no, it's 10, 10. It's that guy, the little French character with the that's curly right, thing right. in front of his head. We um, digress. So the, ahead, no, I was going to say the very first thing I did on my very first day on the job at AOC was to help verify case count data. So I've been doing this, you know, almost nonstop for 10, for 10 years. So this is what they make the new guy do. Is that what you're saying? If, if you don't get initiated in case count early on in AOC, then we're not doing our jobs right. <laughs> so, Judge Emerson, if you don't mind, tell everybody a little bit about what case counts really are all about. I mean, I understand that you're counting numbers, but, but what are you why are you doing it and why are they so important to the judiciary? There's really two kinds of counts that we do. One is for the. Uh, non-superior courts, the state court, juvenile court, probate court, magistrate court, and municipal courts. And basically, we're just trying to, to figure out how many cases they had, how many did they dispose of, what kind of work did they do. Uh, from that information, sometimes uh, the AOC has asked for policy advice from looking at that kind of information. And it's pretty important, you know, and if you think about statewide policy, to know uh, about the cases that the courts are dealing with. The Superior Court is different. Um, many years ago, back when Jimmy Carter was president, uh, we started this process of the Judicial Council would recommend uh, 
the formation of new judgeship slots for circuits or circuit splits and things like that. Uh, I don't know if you know how the Douglas County Judicial Circuit came into being, but uh, at one time, the most powerful man in the state was a man named Tom Murphy. I seem to remember that. And Tom Murphy yeah. was the Speaker of the House, and he wanted the Douglas Circuit and my predecessor out of his circuit, the person that I ran against for judge. And so the Douglas Judicial Circuit was formed, and that judge, which is where that judge lived, and that's how the Douglas Circuit was, was formed by political and exercise of political will. And the rest, as we say, is history. Yes. So what we've tried to do, the purpose of, of the case count methodology is to take any, as much politics out of the judgeship process to make it a, the result of an empirical study and genuine need for judgeship resources. So we, we, it's our job to study the case count of the Superior Court and all of the courts. Realize there's 1,124 courts in this state. It's a huge job. But the Superior Court, we have a formula that looks at case weights. And then from that, we compute the need for judges. Did the, when, when you count municipal and probate and magistrate and juvenile, the other non-superior courts, is there a judge creation process associated with them like there is with superior court? Only potentially. And that is uh, they could take their numbers and use those to compare. For example, the state court judges um, participated in our last time of motion study. So that they, I think, so that they could use that. But realize all other courts, their judgeships are formed at the local level. Although the state court judges are sometimes are created by legis legislation, that's purely up to the local county governments. But our numbers could have an impact on that. I was just going to say, Wade shies away being politically correct as he is from calling them the inferior courts, but there is statutory and case precedent for that. Christopher, and as, as, a, as a matter of fact, we're actually in the middle of helping a couple. I won't name them so, so it's not to cause uh, embarrassment, but we're in the middle of helping a couple um, uh, of the uh, limited jurisdiction courts get additional resources by using, in part, their case counts. And so we, we help courts with that all the time. If, they've, if they want to know how to get more resources, we can look at their case counts and help them do that. So we use this data all the time to help make those, help them make those prove their case to their county commissioners, city councils, uh, whomever. I can tell you from personal experience, folks, I had a problem a couple of years ago when I was chief judge with trying to get some case count data correct and, and making sure that we had the right numbers to try to get a new judgeship. And these two men who we have on the program today uh, just were incredibly helpful to us in our jurisdiction and just trying to make sure that we dug in and got the numbers right and, and you know, were helpful in making suggestions to us about where we ought to look for issues and problems. And, you know, so I, we're, we're, we're really talking about people who take it seriously that this is part of their job to help other folks out. David, what were you going to say? Uh, well, uh, they, you know, the numbers we use, we, we not only report the total filings. And, and with that number, you know, for example, a judge in one place can say, look, I've had this many cases. And this court over here has two judges or three judges. So they can use those for comparison. But another important thing that we started counting a number of years ago is dispositions. And, and 
if you look actually at a lot of our courts, they're disposing of their casework. They're doing their work. They're moving their cases. And so we're able to reflect that as well. We even give awards for that. <laughs> we do. They're coming out. They'll be coming out in the next few few weeks. You call them whammies or I mean, what do you call them? <laughs> we call we call them clearance rate awards. So the, a, a clearance rate is um, basically just, I won't get into, I guess, too far into the math, but it's just how many cases you've disposed of versus how many you've gotten in. If, you, if you've disposed of more than you've gotten in, then you've got a high clearance rate. Um, and that means you're, you're getting rid of, of all of the cases you've gotten in. And so um, the council wants to reward courts that are doing that hard work and moving those cases um, efficiently and, and, and give them a little recognition for that. I was going to tell you too, I think what our listeners would really love for us to do this being an audio podcast is get deep into the math. I think talking okay. about numbers over a podcast is one of the most stimulating things that you can do. So, <laughs> right after doing statutes, Chris, right. who's on the JWAC committee? Yeah, and then is it appointed? Do you get paid a bunch of money? Sure. Yeah, yeah. You you get you get paid um, exactly as much as you um, get paid to do your regular uh, job. Um, it just comes along as one of those extra duties that you get volunteered uh, for. Um, the JWAC Judicial Workload Assessment Committee is appointed, it's a standing committee, which means it's appointed by the Supreme Court. And so Judge Emerson referenced that he is appointed by um, the Chief Justice and the, and the whole Supreme Court. So it's his vice chair, um, Judge uh, Russell Smith of the Mountain Circuit. And then the other members are made up of representatives from each of the 10 judicial administrative districts, the Superior Court judges, and then each of the limited court, limited jurisdiction courts have a representative as well, we also have a number of advisory members, clerks, court administrators, prosecutors, and defense um, um, public defenders that help advise us on a number of issues. So it's a, it's a pretty big group that we try to get together uh, three or four times a year. Well, that was what I was going to ask is, how does the committee get together to do its work? Uh, you know, do they, do they meet? Is there evaluation that they do uh, separately and then come together? How do y'all do that? We, up till now, we have met and tried to meet in person, you know, those three, three or so times a year. But I think we had our last meeting in March. Judge Emerson was over over Zoom. And I, I'm guessing our meetings will continue to be over Zoom for the foreseeable future. Well, we all love Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, we, we've been the beneficiary of that. We've talked about that enough, but we can't all gather together and record these podcasts. So, um, yeah, we're the beneficiaries of that as well. So, um, Judge Emerson, how do y'all get the data? How do you actually obtain the, I guess, raw data, if you want to call it that? The, all of the courts receive a notice, and, and we've moved it back. Christopher can give you the exact dates. We've had to move it back some because of some requirements that were imposed on the, the juvenile courts. But uh, we request that in regard to the courts, we get the information from the superior court clerks, the other clerks of all of those courts. They report that to the AOC by entering their data into what we call a portal. And it's actually pretty easy. I've done it. I've seen it. Uh, the new case management systems, believe it or not, Wade, I can go to my case management system and count my cases in about a minute. Uh, I know that's irritating, but, but it, it actually does that. But I just that, threw up my hands in disgust, David, but okay, yes, go ahead. But they, they'll do that. But uh, then without except, there's one exception to that. In other words, we rely on the courts and their, their staff to make the reports. The accountability court data actually comes from the accountability courts council 
and the governing group that, that does the grants, because when the accountability courts have been, when they were established, they set up an excellent system for reporting their data. And of course, the Superior Court clerks, in, our case, in the case of my court, our Superior Court clerk does not have that information at all. But we have very accurate accountability court data by that means. And Christopher, you want to share a little bit more about the how-to of how the clerks report their data? I do. So I was I was going to say, um, again, I don't know how deep in the weeds uh, uh, you, you judges want to get, but Georgia is what we refer to on the national scene as a decentralized state as far as your judiciary. Um, and that means that the funding and governance of the courts happens both at the state and local level, depending upon the issue, and that there are, there's also you know, multiple groups of elected and appointed officials with various jurisdictions involved. Um, Georgia also has the most counties of any state other than Texas. And so that makes it hard um, for us to just be able to push a button at the AOC and get all the data. And we are working on that. We're working towards that. Um, but in the meantime, clerks and, and judges um, are left to kind of a, a largely manual process. They're uh, responsible for getting their case count from their case management system as best they can. And then they log on to a website. I'm sure you can put a link on your on your website if people don't know how to get there. But we send out notices uh, around the first or second of January, telling courts how to how to report. They they when as soon as they get their reports, they log in, type in their data, and it is a good amount of data. When we're asking for upwards of 50 to 100 pieces of data uh, per class of court per year, not to mention the accountability court data. They enter that in, click submit, and it's in a, it's automatically in a database in my office. We can see it immediately. We can look at it. We can pull it. We can start analyzing it. And then we go through a review process. We work with the court to double check the data as best we can and make sure that it's correct to the best of everybody's, everybody's ability. And then Judge Emerson already mentioned the accountability court uh, exception, and we get that data directly from them. Still in the database in our office, we combine all that data, and that's what we use to analyze. We'll uh, we'll put we'll put a link to that, uh, Christopher, on our uh, website at goodjudgepod.com. Go ahead, David. Tane, what what I was going to share is that as as we go through this process, uh, the judges can actually log in to that, and they can see the numbers. It's just a simple website, and their court numbers. Once their clerk uploads those they can see those and Christopher as I recall we we uh, report that back to the chief judges of the circuit for verification but it's always available to them to look at and uh, you know I encourage chief judges especially and, and I think the committee adopted a policy of letting all of the judges of the circuit who had an interest look at their case counts it, matter of fact, anybody that's interested can can log on and, and see those case counts. And it's mostly judges and court administrators, but you can go and and create a, a username and password and and look at the courts that you um, that you work for or work with and, and see um, as it's entered what their case count data is. And we encourage that. We want more people to look at it and help us making sure we're get we're getting accurate data. Well, no doubt after this podcast, you will be inundated with listeners who will be jumping on that website. Guys, how, how, how do y'all figure out how long something takes? I mean, I've seen some of the, the other side that it says how many hours a judge spent on a, an arraignment or a judge spent on a um, criminal trial or civil trial. How do you come up with that? Wade, what, what we've done over the years, and we've done it more than once, um, is called a time and motion study. 
And this is pretty much the only way you can, you can study the work of the courts. And we ask judges to enter data just like they did when they were practicing lawyers. They keep time on how much time they spent on any given case. And we did that study about two and a half years ago or so. Uh, that was our most recent one. We've done them in the past over about five year spans. They cost money. Uh, we hired the best organization that we could find, the National Center for State Courts. That's really the only one that you can bring in to, as your consultant. And they managed our most recent study. Uh, and also, the state court judges did the time and motion study along with the Superior Court judges because we were looking at, at things like the time it takes for serious misdemeanors. And we've developed a new count a time uh, wait for that. We also looked at accountability court numbers, which is very important. And amazingly, our number, our number of minutes for accountability courts was almost exactly the same as what the state courts reported. But we do, the, the weights are not something we make up. They are based on judge experience, judges entering data, and then it's closely analyzed. We had a team of Superior Court judges uh, on a committee chaired by now retired Chief Judge Melody Snell Connor that supervised our side of that study. And uh, I served on that as a member of that committee and we uh, strained at Nats to try to get those numbers right as we looked at the, uh, at the numbers that were being reported back to us. And, and so uh, it is an empirical evidence-based, as it's popular to say, uh, weight for these cases. And they're averages. Obviously, you know, we have cases that take longer, but it is our effort to make an, uh, to achieve an average amount of work for a Superior Court judge on any given case. That's stated in minutes. And so when we do the case count, we look at the different case types that are reported. And if you imagine an Excel spreadsheet, Christopher has those case weights plugged into it. They put the, the number of cases, tort cases, for example, serious torts, things like that. We have certain type, several types of torts because the legislature asked us, asked us to count those. But we look at those, one's called complex tort. We apply uh, for a complex tort, we get 868 minutes credit. And uh, we apply that weight to the to however many cases they had, and then we add up the total to for the circuit uh, numbers. Christopher, when that data comes in, what is what does the AOC do to do with it in trying to determine, for example, something like is a judgeship another judgeship needed uh, in a jurisdiction? And I know that's something the committee works on too. But to, how how is that? What do they do with that data once they get it and 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 you know, determine sure. that from a so as Judge Emerson was just going through, he got you to the end of one part of the process. So we, as he said, we take however many cases you had, take the the minute values, the weights as we call them, and get a total number of minutes for that circuit. We then do, and this is also based on the time and motion study. We then actually, in the time and motion study, the judges reported um, all the time that they weren't able to be a judge, so all the time that they had to drive around in their well, Judge Kelly, you don't have to write your circuit, but I know Judge Padgett does. So all the time. I like to. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's, it's not necessary since my office is across the hall from right. my courtroom. Right. right 
so we calculate all the time you have to ride around in your circuit. We calculate all the time that you have to take mandatory training all the time. Um, uh, all, we took out all the weekends. We took out state holidays and we came up with a number that represents, depending on which circuit you are, if you have a lot of counties in your circuit or, or very few, um, how much time you actually have to be a judge, either in chambers or on the bench. And so we take, it's very simple arithmetic. Um, judge Emerson's an expert in calculus, but you don't need to be to follow along with this. All you have to know is how many minutes you had worth of work versus how many minutes you had to do the work and just simply divide. And that number tells you about how many judges on average you, you need um, during that year to do that amount of work. And if that, if that number is about, is if, if the number that you, the amount of work you have is 20% higher than the number of judges that you have, then the judicial council says that you are uh, qualified to uh, request a, a new judgeship from, from the legislature. Now that doesn't mean you always get one. And we could tell lots of stories about times when courts couldn't get one for different reasons, even though they had met that 20% threshold. But that's the, that's the barrier we look for to see if you've got 20% more work as a circuit then the council says, we're going to ask the legislature to give you an additional judgeship. You know, Tane, we've talked about the impact that COVID-19 has had on our processes and how we're going to try cases with social distancing and all that. And we've talked about how much longer things are going to take than they used to take um, because we can't have a bunch of people in the room, whether by calendar call, juries, et cetera. Guys, will the new post-pandemic reality sort of influence anything produced by y'all's committee? Earlier today, I was thinking about that, and I sent Christopher an email that told him that we're going to have to do a new time and motion study. And, uh, you know, we're got to, in the budget, state budget like it is, I don't know if we'll be able to get funding for it. But uh, they cost about $200,000, by the way, to, to do one of these studies. Yes. They're not, they're, they're expensive if you want to do them well, and we want to do them well. Wade, why don't you just suggest that each superior court judge chip in for that and see if we can get that done? <laughs> You're in leadership. Go ahead, man. Well, and I'm sure they will all participate as, as uh, data entry folks, too, for us, which is a problem for us. But uh, I, I'm going to, as chair of the committee, I'm going to begin laying the groundwork to begin a new time and motion study uh, because uh, things have changed a lot. We all know that. All of us are aware how much things have changed. I'll, I'll be blunt. My experience with our WebEx system, I think that the litigants like it. They're able to get their cases done without crossing the city of Atlanta and dealing with traffic, uh, which is a big problem around here. Uh, but there's also limitations on that, and it does take us some time, and, and it takes more administrative work. Uh, you know, I've entered a lot of, of WebEx scheduling orders in the last month, you know, changing things and telling people how to log in and how to get on. So there's more administrative work. And we do count administrative work. So as I say, we're going to have to try our best to get funding for a new study. Uh, we, You all asked earlier about uh, habeas cases. and There's a special type of case called a prison. I call it a prison habeas. It's not your ordinary habeas. And we had a lot of feedback from uh, judges that have prisons in their jurisdictions that the number of minutes we we're using for habeas cases was too low. So Christopher, you want to share what we're doing on the state, the, the habe prison habeas count 
I, I do. So, so what we are, are working on, and again, COVID has slowed all. It's COVID has slowed a lot of stuff down. COVID has slowed our efforts in this area down. But we are working on revising that that uh, prison habeas weight. Um, it's kind of combined with another case type at the moment, and so we're going to decouple those those case weights, and so that should better reflect the work that's going into those those prison cases. That's something that the National Center is gracious to, enough to do for us for free. Um, they do a number of, of uh, follow-up items for free. And so they, they have been working on that one. And I think, again, COVID has slowed that progress down, but they, they've promised me they're back on it. And so as soon as we can get a, um, a, a adjusted habeas weight, that's what we'll start to use for those types of cases. But Judge Emerson is right. I mean, we've not, when we did the study two and a half years ago, we couldn't have predicted a pandemic that was going to cause all this new business. And so um, we probably need a new study as quick as we can get one, as, and as expensive as it'll be, because the way y'all have done business has changed. Maybe some cases will take less time because you can do them over WebEx. Maybe some cases are going to take a long time because they're jury trials and you've got a social distance. And so we just don't know. And so we don't want to make up numbers as to what it'll be. We want to try to go out and do another study as, as soon as we possibly can. Guys, can y'all tell us some common problems that you have with, from just that annual reporting, not COVID related really, but annual reporting from either the clerks and or the judges? Yes. Uh, we see several commonalities. Uh, and, you know, I told y'all I love numbers and case counts. So I believe it or not, I'll just sit around and look at what circuits are doing. And so I, I've gotten pretty familiar with what we, what we would expect from a given circuit, an urban circuit, a rural circuit, a suburban circuit. And so I will look at their reports and frequently I get uh, requests uh, for approval of, of late filings. And I'll look at those because those are, um, is re the rules require that I approve those before staff can accept them. So commonly I go and look at those numbers and there are several things that I have seen repeatedly and uh, one is the failure to count child support recovery cases. Believe it or not, I found a, a lot of courts that reporting that reported zero. Well, we all know that's our most common, our largest civil category is child support recovery cases. So for some reason, those come in as zero. Courts routinely struggle with probation revocation uh, counting. And that's because the way we handle probation revocations, they're filed under the primary, the original criminal case. And so they have to go and count the documents. And uh, some of the case management systems are now actually helping us to find probation revocation petitions. Uh, one other area that's frequently undercounted is first offender adjudications. That's a probation revocation, not a discharge, not a first offender discharge, but an adjudication of guilt is a revocation. And all candor, my circuit, we weren't counting those for a number of years. We just didn't think about it. It's not a big number, but we were undercounting. I've found that uh, some of the case management systems, including my own, and, uh, and Tane, I found this in your circuit, uh, were failing to properly categorize tort cases. As I mentioned earlier, we have a, a heavier weight for complex torts like medical malpractice. And, and they were just counting uh, general, every 
tort case was coming in as, as what's called a general tort. And that would result in an underweighting of their tort caseload. Also, Christopher has studied this issue pretty closely and has put together a, a laminated, a very nice laminated card to help people look for those common problems. Christopher, you want to talk about your, your card? I do. We, so we have, and I'm sure they can link it on, uh, on goodjudgepod.com. Uh, um, I've, I've listened to every episode, so I know, I know the drill with the, with the websites. You're, You're the guy. The one. <laughs> yeah, You're the one. They say in unison. <laughs> we um, wondered who that was. Um, so we have a, uh, a bench card uh, on the website. Um, and of course, budget being as it may, it'll, we probably won't be able to print them. Um, but we've got on the website, it goes through, um, you know, uh, everything you need to know to get started, um, looking at your case count, uh, um, will, will reading this bench card magically fix your case count? No, but it'll tell you where to start. It's got links for all the, the AOC pages. It has like Joe Jimerson said, some of the commonly common issues, some of the common problem areas noted. It's got suggestions about how to, how to talk to your vendor, how to train your clerk, how to talk to your clerk. Um, making sure that you're um, reporting at the appropriate times, um, all that stuff available on this bench card. Um, and so, again, we encourage everybody to, to look at that. It's just a, it's, a, it's a good starting point to help you if you if you're newly appointed, elected judge, and you you get charged by your chief judge or somebody to look at case count. Um, you know, it's a good place to start to figure out what's going on, where to go, what to do. Well, I want to I want to kind of wrap up with one maybe last question I'll throw out to both of you. And we've talked about some problems. We've talked about how numbers are used. We've talked about case counts. What can a particular jurisdiction do if they think that there is a problem with the numbers that are submitted for their jurisdiction in a, in a given year? And y'all just talk, uh, Christopher, maybe you start and just tell us a little bit about what can happen there. Sure. So I wanted to, to put in a couple of shameless plugs um, while Please. I'm here because we have um, I mean, AOC is a service organization, and so we, 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 we've been working on this for a, a while now, and, and we came to the conclusion that to help the uh, 1,124 courts, we needed to devote some full-time resources to it. And so we have managed to um, dedicate now a, a researcher full-time that their job literally is to help every class of court, and in particular superior courts that are as part of workload assessment, to help them with their case count. Um, now we can't hand count every case in every county in every court, um, but we we can once we're allowed to travel uh, again, we can get together and do in-person training. Um, we can we're going to produce some webinars. We can do technical assistance. Um, we can do all those things with this dedicated person, and their job literally again is just to help courts get their cases counted correctly. Whether that means training, help, education, um, just sitting down and and helping them read over the instructions. Um, we can do that. And so that person's name is Jeffrey Thorpe. I told him I'd give him a shout out. Um, we'll put his um, his email and phone number um, on, on the website. It's on the AOC website as we speak. But you call him, um, email him day or night and say, you know, our case count looks wrong. It looks bad. We're confused. We need help. We get clerks that are newly appointed. They know they're supposed to do it. They don't know what to do. Um, give him a call and he will uh, call you. Uh, Zoom meet with you, come out there, whatever you can do to, to get it right. That's a resource that we have that we want to use. That's great. And yeah, we'll try to post up his number on goodjudgepod.com as well. Yep, yep, yep. Um, David, anything else you want to add to that? I, I have 
last year and the year before, I, I would routinely write to chief judges to tell them when I saw anomalies in their case counts. And you did that and, for us. And, and I still I do that. It. And and I, I know when I know I know when he does it because I get nasty emails and uh, the uh, the next day saying saying what can I do to fix my case count? David Emerson says it's wrong. <laughs> well, and, and you know, and one of my things that I wish our, especially our chief judges, would do, and that is to engage with their case management systems and with their clerks and, and get engaged in the count. It's important, you know. It, it's it, and it's all that much more important uh, this year again. Legislators asked Christopher at the at the uh, meeting they had this week in the Senate. On, on the funding about the judgeship reduction formula. So, you know, if, if I were in a circuit where our numbers were weak or low, I would want to make sure that my clerk reported every possible filing accurately, but, um, you know, to make sure they're doing it and getting those numbers in. And, and so by engaging in it, and, and we stand ready to help anybody who, who has a problem. Uh, and to, to show them what they need to do and, and tell them how to fix it as best we can. As I said at the beginning of this broadcast, and I'll say it again, I mean, these two gentlemen were incredibly helpful to me when I was chief judge um, in trying to make sure that we got our numbers right and get counts right and um, were always available to answer questions. And I had many uh, questions, particularly when I was a brand new chief judge about how this process went on. So Christopher, you wanted to chime in with I, one of And I, I just wanted to add one other thing bef uh, before we uh, wrap up, uh, you sure. know, just an another shameless plug is, is we can help with all the case counting stuff. We can also help with detailed analysis of your court's data, uh, more than just workload assessment. We can help figure out if you've got a backlog. Uh, we can figure out, you mentioned during one of your podcasts about you can close cases that are civil cases that are over five years old. We can help you figure out how old your cases are. Uh, we can help you figure out, you know, if, if you're using uh, your jury utilization rate, um, save you some money there. Uh, we can help with all those things. Those are all common court tools that'll help your courts run more efficiently. Um, but as Judge Emerson said, the key thing for, for us at AOC is just involvement by judges, clerks, court administrators, um, because there's a lot of city council members, county commissioners, and, and people in the General Assembly. And those are the people that, all, that, that fund all, all this court work. There's, those people often have no idea, you know, what judges do day to day. Most of them aren't attorneys. Um, and we know the case count can be tedious and annoying, um, but it's really the only way um, a lot of times to show the hard work of the courts. Um, and it's often the only way to get additional resources. Like Judge Emerson said, you can't just use political will anymore. You've got to have your data backing you up three, three ways to Sunday. Um, and so, you know, in our 10 years, in my 10 years at the AOC, I've helped Court administrators, judges, you know, prove and clerks prove that they need more staff. We've helped them prove they need more salary. We've helped them prove that they need a new building. We've helped them prove that they need more judges. Um, we've helped them show that they are doing really well as far as access to justice. And we've helped them highlight where they're falling through the cracks and they may need, you know, some additional money or additional um, focus on a certain area. We offer all these services you know, free of charge, by the way, um, um, not only because we have to, but we feel it's, you know, the right thing to do. And it's just a great way to serve our judges and, and the public because we, you know, we need to administer justice um, and, and at, at a high level and do it well. So we, we, we want to do it and, and, and do it well for everybody. Well, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for, uh, for what you both do for us as, as judges in the state and do for us for this as well. And, and I'll just say it, a, a lot of what you do is above and beyond the, uh, the call of duty. Um, 
Thanks again to both Judge David Emerson and also to Mr. Christopher Hansard from the AOC for being our special guest today. Chris, was it what you thought it would be? Uh, it's, it, yeah, I think it sounds about right. Was uh, this your dream come true? That's what we want to know. Well, anytime I can talk, <laughs> anytime I can talk to you guys, uh, it's uh, uh, appreciate it. Guys, thanks a lot for everything that you do. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Yep, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye bye. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kale and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.